what I just noticed as I was looking over your shoulder, Brad, is that you really do something with the bulletins here. Because I sent that picture that's on the cover, and it, um, I thought, I recognize that. So you already know where we're heading a little bit this morning uh, as we, when I'm here, study through parts of uh, the book of Joshua. And it's always good to be here. Charlotte really bemoaned the fact that she had an assignment at uh, Two Rivers this morning with some, well, she loves doing it, with the children there, but... Um, it meant that she couldn't be here with you and with me. And that was the comment as we kind of went different directions this morning. What I love about your church, a number of things, but one of them is um, that you understand that in a small church, you really work well at getting to know one another and building fellowship, which is really difficult in large churches. And so they have to work they have to work really hard at it, but so do small churches, and I want you to know Charlotte and I always feel so welcomed when we're able to be with you here. I invite you to turn in, the, to, in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, the fifth chapter. Joshua chapter 5, and I'd like us to, to look at this. I'll read it from the ESV translation this morning, and then we'll study it together. Joshua chapter 5. As soon as uh, all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gebeth Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came up out, up, out, out of Egypt, all of the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. And though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came up out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place, that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised, because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, and so the, so the, and so the name of that place is called Gilgal, to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes, parched grain. And the manna ceased from that day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel but they ate 
the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And so Joshua did. Quite the story, isn't it? Big day ahead, actually. Big days ahead for, for Israel. They've been 40 years waiting, wandering, wondering, perhaps. Chapter 6 is where it seems to all happen. It gets very exciting to, to everyone who reads it. The old, the old of, of the Israelites is going to become very, very brand new. Of course, that's really one of those questions in life, isn't it? Can that really happen? Or is it just a story? Can old things become new again? I've seen it, as you see on the cover of your bulletin today, in programs like American Rest- Restoration or Counting Cars. I, I marvel when I go through a car show. California, where we lived for so long, is kind of uh, filled with those kinds. But you have your own, so I'm looking forward to seeing them here also. It's amazing to me. How can something that had turned into a rusty bucket of bolts all of a sudden become something so genuinely beautiful and new? Well, it can happen to cars. It happens to houses. Can it happen to a nation? Can it happen to us? Can it happen to churches? I mean, what if I've messed up so badly? Is it possible that the old things of God could become new again? Is there hope? Some people don't have much. But I want you to see the hope of this passage today. Some people say, well, I've tried to change. I've tried to bring old to new. But they're kind of like people have worn out the brakes of a car. They've just been riding the brakes trying to stop doing this, stop doing that. And they don't really become new. Some, I think, have a bad source for their fuel. Their engine just doesn't run very well. Life is difficult. Can old things become new? It was not that long ago that I picked up a book because of its title. It was called Don't Call It a Comeback. I had been in a, written up in a, a, a study at one point, a church that I pastored, and uh, it was called Comeback Churches. And uh, there was a little bit in it about our congregation. And here's a book by Kevin DeYoung of East Lansing, Michigan, and he says, and others who are of his generation, don't call it comeback. And I thought I should read this. So I did. And here's how the book starts. And I want you to know I identified with it. He said, I, I didn't just grow up in church. I practically lived there. Me too, I thought. And then he wrote, 
My family was in church every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening. Weather, band trips, vacation, mild case of whooping cough, bears in the Super Bowl, it didn't matter. My story, I thought. We were in church, he wrote. I attended Sunday school. I was there on Wednesday nights as a kid and on Sunday nights after church for youth group. I started doing daily devotions when I was in high school. I read my Bible, had parents who loved God and generally surrounded by pretty decent Christian friends and I liked it. Me too, I said to myself as I read. Seriously, when I read Kevin DeYoung's description, other than the fact that the Chicago Bears weren't in the Super Bowl until 1986, and in addition that I participated in a high school age weeknight discipleship ministry as well, it was my story. Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, the whole, and eventually the Bears did get to the Super Bowl. See, the only real difference between Kevin DeYoung's story and my story was simply this. I discovered he was 30 years younger than I. 30 years younger. Now, he didn't have me in mind when he wrote that book. But I read it and I thought, old things can become new. I thought it could be my story too. It might be your story as well. See, it's not about the name of the program. It's not about the style of music. There is something that God wants to do in His church that's not just simply coming back. It's something that's old. It becomes new. Well, I've mentioned this, I think, a couple of weeks back. I was pretty young when old started to become new for me. I'd gone from a church where we would sing, I'm going higher someday, and deep and wide. They were on the Sunday night playlist, not the Sunday morning one, of course. But I went to this Christian school near Boston and to this church that I've mentioned before that uh, crowded the very center of the city of Boston where I did get to meet one of their pastor's daughters and she became my first wife and we celebrate our 50th anniversary in just a few weeks. But dare I say, it wasn't just a build, an old building in Boston that made some things come new for me. Even though I'd come from a good church where the gospel was preached, we all come to a place in our life, maybe many places, many times, when the Word of God itself becomes boldly new to us. And I listened to this profound preacher, and it wasn't just a running commentary about the Bible. It was God's Word that began to grip my soul it wasn't because I'd gone to a Christian college. It was in the church itself. And we sang these songs that were old that I had never sung in my whole life. And someday, just between you and me, I think that's going to happen to some young people in our churches today. 
where the playlist of Sunday morning is written, everything, everything that's written or sung has been written in the last decade. Someday, old will probably become new for them. And my life was renewed. The old became new. That's kind of the picture I find when I open these chapters. We looked at a couple of weeks ago and then we finished the section today, chapters 3 through 5. And we talked about this whole issue, issue of alignment, about the importance of orienting our lives and the expression of our lives in growing hunger to God and his good news. Aligning ourselves with God it was something new for me in my college years of life. That's what I see here. Abraham's now gargantuan family has crossed over the muddy Jordan River and there's no mud on their sandals. None. Forty years have passed. Hundreds, really, when you look at the whole history. God is taking something that is wonderfully old and he makes it brand new for them. So we looked at a couple of images a couple of weeks ago and we called ourselves to adjusting the parts of our lives so that they would be in proper relative relationship with, with God and who he is. And we, we talked about, you may recall, the ark and how that was a picture for us of following God and how Israel had to align themselves with this ministry of following after God. And then we looked at the stones that were there in the, the rip, from the riverbed as they set them on the shore and that became this monument, but it wasn't just a monument. It wasn't something you bowed down to, that it was a reminder of how great God was and they would reverence their life before God and they would worship God in new ways and they did. Those are both essential to our lives if we're going to experience the newness of God if we're going to fulfill God's purpose in our life. But then we come to this third and fourth that are found in chapter 5 in particular. And my son, who was preaching at uh, Two Rivers this weekend, and I kind of exchanged what we were preaching on. He's preaching from Psalm 19. He, by the way, he memorized it and, and shared it as I heard it last night. And I thought, I can't do that with Joshua 5. And he wrote to me and he said, Dad... Uh, all those flint knives, huh? This is going to be an interesting sermon about circumcision. And I said, yeah, it could be. It could be. Because that's one of the images. I call it the blade. I call it the blade because lots of you good folks from Oak Ridge, you carry a blade probably, some kind of a knife in your pocket. Every time I go overseas and I'm in Albania and I pull out my jackknife, they look at it and say, how'd you get that over here? And they forget where I actually do carry a suitcase when I get on the plane and put it underneath so it can come with me. But lots of people carry a knife. But this is a little different, isn't it? And here is a blade that really becomes a symbol to the people of Israel that we ought to identify with in a specific way as well today. And this image, this image that we want to see from the first part of Joshua chapter 5 helps us to see that God intended, if we're going to be in alignment with him, that we'll be a part of his family, his forever family, but in particular this family that gathers together. 
one family, but not just one family. It's his family. And we, we say, if God is going to help me fulfill his purpose through my life, I need to be in alignment with my family, a family of faith. So here's this, this blade. And there's a bit more to the story, of course. We read it in verse 1, right? There's this coalition of kings. They're, they're scared spitless is kind of the way I look at it at least. They're, 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 way, out of their, they're way out of their minds. They, they, they have no chutzpah. There's no glory left. They're, they're totally lost in their situation. All the people from the whole region, specifically as we shall see from Jericho, now, just, I'm just saying this, that if I were in charge, I know what I would do. They're frightened. We're excited. Let's go. Let's go charge up that, that the road to Jericho and let's do it. Let's get it done. But God had other plans. Verse 2, right? God says to Joshua, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to park the army right here for a while. Hold on to your horses and, and here's, what, here's what I need you to do. I get some flint knives. Now, uh, these swords of stone is what they were. Very small. They're disposable. You know they're sharper than, they can be sharper than a piece of stainless steel. And, and uh, you, they're so small you could get them on an airplane. Just kind of flakes of common flint off of probably limestone. He says, get those together. Because you're going to use them. And he says to them, circumcise Israel again. Now, of course, you read that first. You, but we went further, but you thought that meant uh, it's going to happen to a guy twice. That can't happen. Now, verse 3 tells us what happens. And, and indeed, they were circumcised. What are the lessons from it? Well, there's a couple of them, two or three that we ought to see. Number one, this is a covenant sign. Those who are uncircumcised need to be circumcised because they were indeed, as I've mentioned already, a part of God's family. It was for all of God's family. Now, if you go back and want to study this, there's a lot to be studied on circumcision in the Old Testament. It starts The story really starts for us in Genesis chapter 17. That's the story of Abraham, all from the beginning. And it's described as how it's to be done. And that it's, it's, in fact, an everlasting sign. It's, it, this is it. This is the marker for them. And it was prescribed by law. That's Leviticus chapter 12. And then back to chapter 17 of Genesis again. It was for everybody. In fact, you were all in or you were out. And it was this marker of circumcision that would determine it. So this, you know, I, I remember when I was a young Pastor, I'd like to argue that this was a very healthy thing for them. But that's not about health at all. It's about, it, it may be, but it's about a sign. It's about a commitment. It's about a relationship. It's about a covenant. This isn't elective surgery. No, this is Joshua care. I mean, it, everybody's going to do it, and it's covered. It's covered. So if you're a Jewish by birth, this is how you identified with your relationship with God. If you were a stranger, the text tells us, or a foreigner or a slave, you too could be circumcised and made a part of the family of God. That's pretty neat. So it's for the, the 
whole family of God. In fact, if you look at the text from verses 4 through 8, you will find the word, you can circle it all, used six different times. It's a reminder, this is for everybody. So that's lesson one. Lesson two is this. Circumcision is an indicator that we are broken before God. Here's a matter of consideration, I suppose. Does God break people or does he bring us to the place where we break ourselves before him? Is that a little too deep for us? Maybe, I suppose, but I, it's in my mind, So, and I'm up here st- talking, so I get to say it anyway. Does God force us, or does God woo us? Is he the God whisperer, or does he just kind of bark orders and move us around? What was that song we sang decades ago, Willie? He'll not compel us to go. He'll just make us willing to go. Is that true? Well, I think the answer is, you're not going to like this. The answer is both. He does both. We should humble ourselves before God. If we don't, guess what? He'll do it for us. We, we should practice patience. Guess what? If we don't, he'll teach us some lessons that will help us learn it. So here are these Muddites that have just crossed the Jordan River, and God brings them into this situation and this setting where they will declare, listen, they will declare to God in submitting themselves to the circumcision that they are broken before God, that God really all we want is what you want for us. We will submit, not in some kind of arm-twisting relationship, but because we really recognize who you are, we will submit ourselves to you. I mean, I'm picturing this. These folks are about shouting distance, really, from their enemy. This, to me, is like, you know, gather everybody together, and uh, here we have some polluted, poisonous water. Drink this, and when your stomach's settled and everything is cleared out, then we'll go to war. This doesn't make sense, except for this. Israel, and they didn't all learn it all the time, but Israel needed to see that God was truly the one who was in control, and they needed to surrender their hearts before him. So verse 8, it's the whole people of Israel, all of them, who experienced this. And this is more than just some kind of slight wounding. This incapacitates them for days, for days. And they broke themselves before God and they said, God will demonstrate that you are the God of our life and we will be true to you as you have been true to us. It's kind of like that woman with the alabaster jar, you remember who broke it and gave all that she had. It's the the widow who, who broke her piggy bank and put her last might in the offering place in the city of Jerusalem. It's a picture of Christ, great picture of Christ, who is going to battle for us, who first surrenders himself on the cross, lays himself down, broken, broken, broken. The church is made up of broken 
people there are a couple of words that I've started listening for in in contemporary music the word sovereign and the word broken broken is in a lot of contemporary songs you listen I I may have ruined some songs for you already And, and listen we are broken people but that's not what he's talking about it's not just recognizing that we're broken it's not even recognizing that we need to because we have pride and arrogance that need to be dealt with it is this it's simply saying God I am not on the throne of my life. You are, and you are in charge, and we can trust you in everything that we are doing in our lives. It's a marvelous picture, this matter of circumcision. Stephen Musser wrote a book about, wrote about horses. It was in a book, another book, not just about horses. But he said this, horses cannot be broken. He said horses have to decide to be broken. Now, I don't know that if that's true, but that's what he said, and he wrote it, so I'm going to read it to you. You've probably seen a cowboy getting on a wild, unbroken horse, right? The horse jumps and twists and bucks in an effort to do anything it can to get the rider off his back, but eventually most horses reach a point where they choose brokenness. They stop bucking and begin to be submissive to the rider on their back. Charlotte and I lived on the central coast of California, just about 45 minutes down the road from us. It was a, a, a ranch that we took guests to from time to time that was owned by a man by the name of Monty Roberts. Maybe you've read The Horse Whisperer. This amazing picture is we'd stand there and watch him walk on his ranches. He, he would get these horses who had no interest in being ridden to walk behind him and he was their master and they decided that's where they wanted to be. Muster says in his book, a broken horse is simply an obedient horse. So a broken member of the family of God is simply a person who says, I will be, as God gives me strength, obedient to you. So God wants us to agree to brokenness, to say, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But there's something else we need to see in this sign. So it is a sign of all of our family together. It is a sign of our brokenness. But ultimately what we need to see is this is not about a physical sign, is it at all? Some of you know the text so well, but it's always about the heart. It's about the heart. And that's the message of the Old Testament repeatedly. So Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 16 says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. How graphic can this be? Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. And be no longer stubborn, he said. Or later on in in Deuteronomy chapter 30, he will say, The Lord will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Do you get the picture? It's about our heart. It's about our attitude. It's not about our physical being. God wants my heart. He wants your heart. He wants me to be committed to Him. He wants you to be committed us to be committed to him he wants us to live for his glory to seek his face to demonstrate his character to maintain his unity all of this is a part of what god wants from us for the joy of our life and for his glory i've met plenty of gifted and capable and powerful church leaders who are still yet to learn this lesson i think they don't intentionally want to be 
people who are in charge. But I think I've shared with you before, uh, it, it struck me not long ago that servant leaders, you know, that's what we pastors are supposed to be, servant leaders. No, we're just supposed to be servants, just servants. And God will use us in leadership. But the call is to be a servant, broken before him. So verse 9, look at verse 9. Here's what it says today. I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. When I read that, I thought, man, I love that verse. I love that verse. Because I, I grew up, I was as small as you could be and still be a human being. I mean, I was just a little guy. I didn't weigh 100 pounds when I went to high school. I went to school with 3,000 students. I was zero. Now, I might have been below zero with some of the. This is Chicago. It was easy to be below zero there. I, and, and, you know, so all my friends were these athletes, and they were, some of them were very nice to me, but, but I still I had to live with this. And I wasn't the smartest boy in the class either, or at least I didn't act like I was. In other words, I didn't get the, the, the best grades. And, and I came upon this verse one day, and I thought, yikes, God can take all of us, and he can, he can roll away the reproach, kind of like what he did with Elizabeth, you know, in the New Testament. And, and she's looking at her old age, and she's never been able to have a child. And here comes John, and she says, In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my reproach among the people. Wow, that's marvelous. Or in Colossians chapter 1, one of my favorite verses in, in, in the, the, that letter that tells us that we are reconciled through his body of flesh, by his death, in order, in order to present, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith. It's credible because of Christ. When our hearts are circumcised. So there's one image. That too needs to be a part of our alignment with God. And then we come to this other image. And I've called it the image of blood. Now just so you know, I can pass out if you show me blood. I don't watch any of those TV shows on TV. I don't care how non-real it is. It can be fake blood, but to me it's the real deal. So uh, if you have a problem, just close your eyes with some of this. But... um, there's this image of blood. Now, it, it's not written up quite like that, I suppose. It's those verses 10 through 12. But you know what it's about. It's about the Passover. And what's the Passover really about? Well, it's not really about the blood, but the blood is the sign. It is about God's protective hand. In the New Testament, we read about this protective hand of God. We might also think of in terms of redemption, deliverance. And we know that from the Old Testament as well. That the the people of Israel, you remember back in Egypt, if they would just get underneath the the doorpost, if they would stay inside that house, when the blood was sprinkled upon the doorpost of the house, well, they'd be safe. So here we are now, the 14th day of the month. It's a few days later, four, I believe. And uh, they've had circumcision. And now they're going to have this Passover. I find it interesting that it doesn't tell us in the text that God said, now celebrate the Passover. He does do that in other places, by the way. He reminds them enough. But this is just, I think this is their idea. Joshua, perhaps. The leaders, perhaps. But they decide that they will now keep, 
keep or observe or do, that's what the word means, do the Passover. Let's do that Passover thing. We know all about it. Let's do it again. So once again, if I were in charge, I would be saying, okay, we got through circumcision. Let's go. Let's get going. Let's get up to Jericho. They're doomed. God says, okay, go ahead. Celebrate Passover. To me, this is a part of the alignment. It's the last piece of the alignment that we need in our lives when we are ready, prepared to do whatever it is that God wants us to do so that old things in our life can become new. So they keep the Passover. Now, by the way, there'll be times, long gaps of time pass between celebration. During the time of Judges, we read in the Old Testament, they they practiced the, the Passover, but then they go 400 years, all the way to 1100 B.C., and eventually to the time of Hezekiah and Josiah, and they practice the Passover, and it's a time of what? Do you remember? It's a time of spiritual revival. It's a time of spiritual newness for them. Why? Because they recognize they truly are under the protective hand of God. So the Passover shall be what? It shall be a sign to you, a sign to you that you are safe in the hands of God. So I don't know what God has for you to do. I don't know what God has for me to do in particular over the next decade of my life. But if I can always be saying, it's okay, I'm under the protection of God, I'll be in alignment with Him. It's being under the blood of the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. That's where it is. And you and I, well, you and I have to have faith that God is able to do that. In fact, you remember the story of Moses. Hebrews chapter 11, New Testament, tells us the story, verse 28. And it says there this, By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Do you get the picture? By faith, by faith, he kept the Passover. By faith, they believed that they were safe, protected from the destroyer of the firstborn. The blood, the blood of the Passover. But this is too Old Testament for us, isn't it? We need to understand what this means. So we go to the New Testament. And soon we discover in places like 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, that Christ is our Passover. Something else didn't become our Passover. The Lord's Supper is not our Passover. Christ is our Passover. The purpose of of communion or the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, is very identifiable, and there's many parallels between that. We know that in the Passover. But ultimately, I want you to know, Here's the message of the gospel. Christ is our Passover. He is our forever protection plan and person. He is the one that delivers us from darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin, says Paul. So, church family, how does this all spell? Spell out for us. 
Well, let's just remember that life is not in the church. But in the church, we will find Christ who is our life. Life is not in the church. But in the church, it's all about Christ. We will find Christ who is our life. So we can say, and you know this, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be what? Saved, right? Saved. And the question is always, are we under the blood? And you say, well, yeah, when I was, mm, and you can name a time and your point in your, a point in your life, and you say, that's where I trusted Christ and I became a follower of Jesus. Good, good. And are you, not in a theological sense, but in a relational sense, are you remaining under the blood? Are you saying, I am trusting God to deal with whatever it is that's going on in my life, in my world, in my church, in the, my, in the politics around me? Am I really trusting Him? Let's remember that alignment was in order for God's purpose for Israel to be completed. In other words, now everything is in place so that the purpose of Israel, by God, given by God, was ready to be completed. The question always comes back, then what is God's purpose for us? God's purpose for me isn't that an old thing becomes new. But God's purpose is that He would live His life through me so that something of God would be revealed to someone in this world in which we live that needs to know Him will take place. And in that, and in that, old things do become new. Well, the, the end of the story is a marvelous picture, and I, I, I'll just uh, touch on it today, and perhaps sometime we'll come back and we'll speak about this some more. But there is what many people, at least Charles Spurgeon, believed, and if he thought it was this, then it must be, uh, that this is a Christophany. This is a picture of Christ. This is not just some soldier of God, but Christ himself who visits as he did uh, w with others in time. Here is this, this one standing before Joshua, and you've read, we've already read the, the great dialogue that takes place. And ultimately what we find out at the end of it is what? That he is standing on holy ground. Same thing Moses was told. See, when we are in alignment with God, we're on holy ground. Is the holy ground some aisle in a church, an altar, a place in a building? Not really in the heart, in the heart that is aligned with Him, in the heart that says, I'm following you. I really am, God. I'll, I'll blow it. I'll miss it. I'll make a mistake. Before I get out of here today, I'll probably do something. But I want you to know that's my intention, to follow you, to reverence you, to worship you, the stone, to be a part of something that is called the church. I don't exactly understand what that means. You know, how can somebody be a part of the church when it's just two or three gathered in my name in some other place there are two and three thousand being added daily? You know, how does that happen? It does. It's when I'm broken before him. Because I've yielded myself to him. It's when I have said, yes, I'm under your protection, under the blood. So, how about it? Let's commit ourselves to follow him, to worship him, 
to gather in light of his faithfulness together and to wait for the hand, protective hand of God to be at work so that old things become new. Thank you, Lord, for Joshua's willingness, his, his, his availability, his leadership that led your people by your design for the purpose that they were called. Thank you, Lord, that that same work is being done today in fresh ways in large places and small places in countries like the United States and little countries around the world where very few people know Christ. Still, it's being done as, as some of my friends are gathering in Macedonia and Albania today. And we recognize, Lord, that this only works as we stay in alignment with you. So do your work, complete your will. We await upon you with joyful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.